Welcome to Raising Me. Here we take the things that we're experiencing as parents right to the experts for advice. I'm Adrienne Stein. I'm a mom of three and a longtime journalist. Of course, the idea for this podcast came because we don't exactly get a guidebook for all the things that we encounter as parents. So we find the people who have experience in the difficult, tricky, fun, beautiful, and sometimes heartbreaking things that we encounter as moms, dads, caregivers. So today we're talking about five ways to improve your relationship with your child. And in preparing for that list, one of the things our guest psychologist, Dr. John Stewart said that really stuck with me is that whenever there's a tear in a relationship between parent and child, it is in his words, the obligation of the parent to initiate that repair. It's just something to keep in mind as we go through these five ways with Dr. Stewart. In private practice, he has decades of experience working with children and parents in the often complex relationships. He is also an assistant clinical professor at Tufts in Boston, and he's an author. So regardless of your child's age, how strong your relationship is, or where you might be in that relationship, Dr. Stewart has five things we can do to improve and strengthen it. Dr. Stewart, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. And I think just as parents, sometimes we have to remind ourselves that our relationship with our kids is always evolving. It is always changing. And sometimes there are good times. Sometimes there are not such good times. And and that's okay, right? I mean, tell us that's okay, right? Yeah, of course. You're gonna you're gonna make mistakes. I mean, if, you know, one of the central notions in in the uh, uh, field of attachment is the fact that relationships involve connections, tears, and repairs, and that the the the, the tears are not problematic unless we're not able to make a repair. Matter of fact, there's even a thought that that a, a, a relationship that's had a tear and a repair, it's kind of like muscle fiber. It actually gets stronger with that. And that that the goal can't be to never have a tear. But the goal has to be that when there are tears and it's in a relationship with somebody that you love, that you make that repair. And I think, you know, obviously there are going to be very large tears that take a lot of repair. And there are going to be everyday little tears that can add up to big tears too. What could that look like? Well, I think one of the dilemmas that you have, and you'll see this in, in any loving relationship between kids and their parents, between partners, between siblings, when there is a tear and the repair isn't made, the relationship begins to become parallel. And it feels, it no longer feels like intimacy. And it no longer feels safe to be able to be vulnerable. Because Intimacy is always contingent upon a willingness and ability to be vulnerable. And so, you know, what can happen between kids and parents? It doesn't happen with younger children that often. Uh, certainly during adolescence, it happens a lot. You'll hear parents say things like, well, I'm not going to respect him until he shows me he respects me. And you get into these standoffs. The issue of respect with adolescents and parents tends to be a really tricky place. Respect. And the truth. Those are the two of the biggest, biggest hurdles that parents have, have to manage in moving adolescents through to adulthood. 
because they're all going to lie to you and they're all going to show disrespect to you. Yeah, but I think just underlining that point, even in the frustration, say if you have an adolescent or a teenager, it is up to the parent to repair that tear in the relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. There cannot be anything that expresses a sense that there's something more important. That connection has to be the most important. Now, you can be upset. A parent can be upset with a child. They can hold them accountable, those kinds of things. But they can say, I'm sorry we're here. No one's to be here. I know you didn't know how to get us here, or I didn't know how to get us here, but here we are. And I love you. And we'll figure it out move forward. What are some of the, the common challenges that, that you've encountered in your, your experience when it comes to creating that, that healthy relationship or even healthy rebuilding of a relationship with a parent and child? Sure, sure. I mean, I think that they bring from different factors and, and they are different at different age, ages in the youngster's development. But I think one of the, one of the things that, that is so common, it's endemic almost to being a parent, is worrying. Worrying about are they progressing in school well enough? Are they doing their homework carefully enough? Are they hanging out with the wrong kids? Are they Worry is, is a problematic dynamic for parents and kids because it's impossible to not worry a parent. But kids, oftentimes parents think that their worry should be experienced by their kids as an expression of their love for them. Maybe there is some of that, but more often than not, when kids are experiencing a lot of worry on their parents' part, all it does is dial up their own anxiety and make it more likely that they're not going to listen to parents and more likely to have their, their, their adaptive functioning brought down by elevated anxiety. The problem is that many of the things that we would do intuitively to, to help fix the situation can actually make it worse. <laughs> and I've raised, I've raised kids, and I'm you know, in the process of, of you know, being very involved in grandkids. And I, like everybody else, I make the same mistakes. And they see one of my grandkids, my wife, is, she's a worrier. And whenever we're out, God, he climbs everything. It's just amazing. And his grandmother is just petrified, reflecting back to him, really, that's dangerous. Be careful. And he, I have taught him to say, they call him Mimi, to say to her, Mimi, thank you for loving me, but I'm okay. Oh, I love that. Well, I, I bet it would stop her in her tracks, you know, and that's a nine-year-old. And that, that worry manifests itself in so many different ways as they get older. I have a teenager who's about to get her driver's license. There's a little worry. Make that a lot of worry associated with that. How about sending a kid off to college or, you know, any number of things? It is so easy to have worry be the default reaction. And so often it's not because of your child's, whatever their behavior is, it's the other guy. That's what I often say to my daughter. It's like, Livy, I trust you. It's the other guy. I, I don't know who that person is, how they're going to react. But what I'm hearing is that I need to calm myself down. And probably a lot of other moms and dads who are listening to this as well. Absolutely. I mean, it is impossible to not worry. And those moments when kids start driving 2,000 pound pieces of metal that are going 60, 70 miles an hour, it's just, it's, 
Um, and so the task at hand is to figure out how to deliver that concern. When a child feels that when they've kind of internalized a sense that the parent thinks they're an idiot or that you know, they misinterpret their capacities, when a child internalizes that, what they do is they internalize a process of blocking that voice out. Uh, we want to stay in the background of our kids' thoughts and decisions, but it is not done by bombarding them with reminders about how perilous the world is. Mm. Wow. Okay. Well, this is eye-opening already. Okay. I'm thinking, rethinking all of my life choices as a parent. Um, look, you, you said it yourself. You're a professional in this, and it's something that you struggle with, raising your kids and now your grandkids, helping to raise your grandkids and being very involved. So we're in good company. You, you, you've heard the saying, the cobbler's kids have no shoes and the yes. preacher's kids have no religion. Yep. The psychologist's kids are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> As a group, they tend to they tend to test a lot of limits. They're wonderful. I love making yeah. No, yeah, there's 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 nobody is nobody is immune. To- We're all trying to figure it out. That is for sure, uh, Doctor Stewart. You know, one thing we went into this conversation really wanting to hit on, and there are many ways that we can work to improve the relationship we have with our child or our children. And so many of it is age dependent, right? But these, we've come up with five really core ways that no matter what the age of your child is, this will help uh, improve your relationship with them. So let's just start with the first one. You say feeling felt is key. What do you mean by that? And why is it so important? In the process of learning how to manage uh, complex emotion, whether that is sadness or anger or joy, that the process of learning to manage that is done initially through an experience of, of, of having what, what's called the co-regulatory experience with, with another, somebody who, who you have a sense that they know what it's like to be you, to feel felt by you. That sense of being known on that emotional level is very powerful and provides kids the sense that whatever is there, they're not alone, that they have available to them a very clear sense that there is someone who has the capacity to have a felt sense of who I am. And we look for that, we look for that in, in all of our relationships, our intimate relationships, our friendships. We want to have that sense that that other person gets us. They get us not just based upon the, the words that we offer or that, that we have a, a visceral, a felt sense that they get it. They're, they're with us. And that's hard to do. Once again, there's situations where it's difficult. And oftentimes, kids are not good at explaining why they feel what they feel. Uh, little ones up to adolescence and young adulthood, they're just not good. A lot of adults aren't great at it. But so it, it, it isn't about needing them to tell you what it is that they're feeling, and then I'll know, and then I can help you feel felt. It's a felt sense. It's the slowing down and being present emotionally in a quiet way. And then the way that they know that you're feeling is largely through your nonverbals. Well, this, this feeling felt feels like it's very close to attunement. Is that... Is it one and the same? Is there a difference between feeling felt and, and our, our number two 
on this list is attunement. So what's it, what is the difference? Yeah, I think feeling felt kind of precedes attunement because attunement largely has to do with how you respond to what the other's feelings, and thoughts, and needs might be. So I want to have an attuned response to my little one who's excited or my little one who's, who's afraid. But first, I'm going to have to have that felt sense to know what's really going on inside them. And then I can offer a response that is in some way in line with what they need from me. So attunement is, is, is kind of the next step after, after I take in the information that says, this is what it's like to be him right and this is what I understand based upon how I know him. It's going to be helpful. Some kids, I might have a sense that they're, that they're afraid or they've been hurt. I've got a granddaughter. When she gets hurt, she has a little bit of a sense of shame about it. And so the attunement is I feel that I know she's been hurt. And the attunement means that I don't try to shine a spotlight on the fact that she's been hurt because that's uncomfortable for me. So what I try to do is just give her a quick squeeze or, or just a, a quick smile or something that just says, you know, I'm with you. I got it. So attunement is, is, is kind of the next step after we have brought in the information. And most of this applies to adult-to-adult relationships as well. We've learned that more than 15 years. As you're talking, I'm thinking in terms of children and parents with their children, but also parent-to-parent and parent to friend and just any sort of relationship that is important to you. And you hit on it a, a little bit as we were we were going through feeling felt and attunement, but nonverbal messaging is really important. So what is it nonverbal messaging and how it maybe more importantly, how is it different than the feeling felt and attunement? I think that uh, they are all linked, but if we recognize that and I'm going to do a real simplistic notion of the organization of the brain, but we have a we have a left hemisphere that's all about logic and language and it's linear. The left hemisphere even likes that all those things start with L. Okay, <laughs> the, right, the right hemisphere is is predominantly managed by the what's called the limbic system, the emotions, and that that they are not linear. They're not logical. The fact is that that. Most of what goes on, particularly in a child, but really in any of us, the largest portion of, of, of who we are, how we feel, is related to that right hemisphere. Now, sometimes we can take what's going on there and we can find the right words in the left hemisphere and give what we sometimes refer to as a narrative about this is why I'm feeling what I'm feeling. Now, sometimes those narratives are not accurate. We're feeling something. And we come up with a story about it. It's not necessarily accurate, but, you know, it's better than feeling like I'm, I make no sense at all. So that's, that's a whole other story in terms of the, the relationship between the right and left hemisphere with regards to the creation of narratives. When we're looking at nonverbals, those, those get processed directly through the right hemisphere. And so nonverbals come in and are processed. You'll, you'll see numbers from 10 to 100 times to I think I've seen 500 times faster than language. And that so before a word has been processed, the brain is already reacting to, is it safe? Is it supportive? Is it, is it kind? Is it going to be okay? Tone of voice, facial expression, 
posture. Those are all nonverbals that get processed very quickly and really do speak most to that right hemisphere. When we're dealing with a child that's, that's, that's got a lot of emotion in a given moment, positive or negative, our nonverbals are going to be what they're, they're, they're responding to. It's not going to be what we say because that has to be processed through the left hemisphere. It's just wonky. It's not a way for information to commit. But unfortunately, we adults oftentimes think that it is language that is really going to open the window to understanding and generally is not. Wow. I mean, this is just like clicking. So the nonverbal, it's what they're looking for beyond, you know, like attunement might be a deeper level, but it has to start with the nonverbal. What is your posture conveying when you're talking to your child? Like you're, you're directly, you know, you're facing them. You're like looking at them. You're part of this conversation versus sort of back, sort of looking at a phone. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tell me a little bit more about it kind of thing. Um, You want to make a child feel invisible, spend a lot of time in their presence, not attending. What's the single most common thing that you hear at the swimming pool? In, in the summer. Stop running? Hey, watch this. Oh, okay. I thought I was, what do I most often say is stop running? Stop running. Yeah. <laughs> Which goes back to the worry, Dr. Stewart. Here we go again. Full circle. <laughs> from, from the kids. Okay. It's hey, watch mom, this. Watch Absolutely. This. That, 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 those four parts, I want, I want to be seen. I want to be soothed. I want to feel safe. I want to feel secure. And they come in different orders. I guess safe first, and then seeing, soothe, the word secure just means that you've got all of those. So I think that, that you know, the nonverbal is, is what gives the message as to whether or not the person coming towards them, whether it's their parent or their teacher or the police officer, whether they are safe. Are they coming in from a stance that is meant to be supportive and, and, and understanding and impact? Now, number four on our list here is belief in self. Is this basically self-confidence as a parent? It's, I mean, somewhat, but I think, I think as a parent, the more you can recognize the power of your love, the power of, that comes from your core self, that is, far and away, the most powerful tool you have to, to protect a child, to support a child in, in, in managing life's trials and tribulations in a way that's, that's skillful. I think the self, we kind of want our core self to speak to the child's core self. I also think, you know, as we've kind of talked about, children are in tune with their parents. Uh, and so when you feel confident about your abilities or you feel like you know what you're doing. That's, I mean, when you, we first talked about this list, I kind of took it as just believing in yourself that really as a parent, we have everything we need in order to raise children. It is that self-doubt that creeps in. It's the worry that creeps in that often prevents us from, you know, really getting in touch with our instincts on, on raising kids. And the instincts that are going to be most important are the ones that are heartfelt. The, the more cognitive ones that say, my job is to teach my child. Children learn. If we can quiet their little brains down and help them feel safe, because we know that 
agitated brains as a function of, of acute difficult situations or chronic exposure to parental marital conflict, things like that. Kids who are exposed to pretty chronic levels of stress. And oftentimes, unfortunately, that's marital stress, but it can also be financial stress, it can be health stress, it can be lots that, that they fall approximately six months behind. And so this notion that we have to have kids' brains ready to learn is so important. And the teaching their brains to learn is teaching their little brains to quiet down. An agitated child is it's like a bell ringing. And our job is to figure out how to be like a blanket that comes and, and dampens that bell. Unfortunately, sometimes we'll see that bell ringing and we'll be like a piece of metal on it saying, stop it. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. You don't need to do that. You shouldn't feel it. And, and the little brains continue to vibrate. So that learning how it's back to the feeling felt and the attunement and uh, all of those things kind of come together to secure kids who, who are feeling all those things, they actually learn much better as well. The last part, one on the list, which again, there are a million ways that you can improve your relationship with your child, but the, for our sake today, we're going through five. I love this. It's just a reminder that kids are joy. And that's such a simple thing, but a really important thing. It's, it's one of those things that when kids recognize that they are a source of joy for us. There's very little that will make them more secure. And so when we're able to let our kids through our nonverbals, through our playfulness, through our excitement and seeing them, when we first come into the room and that when we're able to see that they bring us joy, it provides a kind of security like almost nothing else. And, and that when parents are worried, in the way of joy, and parents are, are overwhelmed by the dynamics of a marriage or financial situation. It's tough. It's, it's hard to do that, but it is worth making a conscious effort to let them know just not how much you love them. That's good. That's fine. But how much you enjoy them. Being playful with your kids is not the icing on the cake. Being playful is, is one of the most powerful ways to see that they bring you joy. I love that. That is such a, that's a great exclamation point on this conversation. Dr. Stewart, if there was one thing, one takeaway for us as parents today that we could do today to help improve the relationship that we have with our child or our children, what would that be? Slow down and listen with your heart. Listen more than you talk. And when kids tell you something, do what you can to reflect back the feeling that goes with it. That would be my best. That's, that's awesome. Dr. Stewart, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation. My pleasure. Really appreciate it. I, I should mention we'll have more resources on this very topic on our website. It's wgme.com slash raising me. Thanks, Dr. Stewart. Thank you. You take care. Slowing down here, or trying to anyway, I'm so grateful for Dr. Stewart's insights. And let's just first start talking about the worriers. Totally guilty right here. As he said, it's just impossible not to worry. I have practically given myself a heart attack just thinking about my daughter going on the highway for the first time by herself when she gets her license very soon. But when you do hear about how worry can be internalized by our kids, 
and the anxiety that that can really create, it's forced me to take a step back. Another takeaway, kids are joy, right? Play isn't icing on the cake, as Dr. Stewart puts it. It's essential. I love that simple reminder. Of course, we know, let's be real. It is so easy to overlook that in the overwhelm of getting home from work, cooking dinner, pile of laundry stacking up, plus a homework project that we're missing supplies for. But since our chat, I really have set those sort of mental reminders to slow down, be in the moment, really look at their sweet faces and return to joy. And it feels good. Thank you so much for listening to Raising Me. I'm Adrienne Stein. This episode is edited by Megan Littlefield and produced with Nate Eldridge. Please follow Raising Me wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, a positive rating and review helps others find this message, and we really appreciate that wherever you are. I hope you learned something new and get to take a little time for you.